Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. I'm really excited about our guest today. He's someone I admire deeply because there are moments in life when individuals have the ability to fight the good fight or choose the easy path and go in with the bad guys. And Stuart Savray chose not to go with the bad guys. He chose the side of the good, and it cost him dearly. He's a political dissident. That's the word I would use to describe him now. Former senator, now political dissident from the island of Jersey, which is one of the Channel Islands off the coast of France between France and England. And we go a little bit more into his backstory during the interview, what he talks about on Jersey, what he uncovered as a senator, as a member of the legislature there, was a dark place and bad things happening. Jersey is a tax haven. It's a place where big corporations and very wealthy people and, yes, criminals go to park their money and avoid taxation or evade taxation. There's a difference. And it's a place where money gets laundered, among other things. So what, you might say? Who cares? What's the big deal about money laundering? What's the big deal about tax avoidance? Who cares? This is what smart people do, right? When Donald Trump, in 2016, in one of the debates, when the story came out about his taxes and not paying taxes, he said, well, that's, that was the smart thing to do. I have good accountants. This is what businessmen do. It was one of the few times that he was telling the truth in the entire campaign, maybe in his entire life. But I bet people listening to that at home admired Donald Trump 
for figuring out ways to avoid paying taxes. And look, nobody likes to pay taxes. But the Republicans have created this narrative over the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, certainly since the days of Reagan, that taxes are bad, that government is bad. If government is the problem, as Ronald Reagan said, then why pay taxes to feed that government? Starve the beast. That's what the anti-tax people say, the Grover Norquists of the world say. Starve the beast. Let the big government, the big bloated government, atrophy and weaken. That's what these people want. But what taxes are, are a way for all of us to get benefits from our government. We get armed forces of the United States in this country keep us safe. You can criticize the military misadventures of the U.S., certainly. I have. But at the end of the day, they've kept us pretty damn safe, certainly since 1945, in a a very perilous world. We get public education for our kids. We get police. And yes, I know there are issues with the police, but we can't not have police. There's fire departments. Taxes pay for that. They pay for Social Security. They pay for Medicare. Lots of benefits that we get. The highway system. I could go on and on, right? That stuff isn't free. It comes out of taxes that we all pay. So when very rich people who already pay historically low top marginal tax rates take money and remove it from the system, if corporations avoid taxation by setting up shop offshore, if criminals don't have money going into the system at all. All of that money that winds up in places like Jersey is not part of the of the tax base. And the difference has to be made up by people like you and me. They are stealing from us. Tax havens create situations where there is theft. And ultimately, taxation is good. We don't like to pay taxes but it's good for our society. Jersey has set up systems and become famous as the best tax haven in the world. It's so good at it that most people don't identify Jersey as being a tax haven, as being what Stuart would call a mafia state. They've achieved, as he also says in the interview, invisibility which is what all criminal enterprises seek. That rarefied state of complete invisibility. So we're going to talk to Stuart in a minute about his experiences there, about Brexit, about the role of the United Kingdom in the world now in the 21st century, about empire. It's a fascinating interview. And I'm excited to share it with you. And let's get right to it. We'll be right back with Stuart Savray. This episode of Prevail is brought to you by the Bank of the Bada Bing, Jersey's best financial services firm. Need some wise guys to sit on your board of directors? Bada Bing can help. IRS needs receipts? 
Bada bing has the best document manufacturing setup this side of Guernsey. Don't want your ex-wife to take your Picasso in the divorce? Sorry, honey, that painting, it got sold. Whether you're establishing a shell corporation, registering a ship, or just parking the loot you won last weekend in Monte Carlo, bring your business offshore to Jersey. Everybody loves fun in the sun, but some high net worth individuals like it shady. Bank it about a bit. Protect your money the Jersey way. And now, back to the show. Okay, so today we have two guys from Jersey. Your host, yours truly, is from New Jersey. <laughs> and Stuart Savre is from Jersey, the island of Jersey in the Channel Islands, from which New Jersey draws its name because way back when, during the reign of King George III, he was like, you can have all of the land between the uh, the Hudson and the Delaware Rivers. guy was named Carteret, and he was from Jersey, yep. and he named it New Jersey. So I think mm -hmm. he probably should have held on to the real estate, would have been worth a lot of money. He did not. Why don't we start, before we get into your background, Tell us a little bit about Jersey, because I'm I'm a geography guy. I love maps and stuff like that, and I always have. And even I didn't know. I knew it was a Channel Island, but that doesn't that doesn't conjure up anything in my imagination. So even I had to look on a map and was surprised to see how close it was to France, rather than than the British side of the Channel. Mm -hmm. So, well, I, geographically, going back a, a a long, long way before the um the English Channel was really flooded. It was um, uh, in back in the Ice Ages. It was a, a been a low grassy plain really between France and England, and the Channel Islands would have been effectively a set of granite hills that um, stood out and over overlooked these grassy plains. So they would have been fantastic places for the early humans who inhabited that area, including Neanderthals. There's a lot of Neanderthal sites on the Channel Islands. Uh, obviously, they became islands as such when the Channel flooded you know, at the end of the Ice Ages, and they became isolated then, and, you know, had a lot of, you know, human habitation throughout that time. And there's lots of ancient um, passage graves and things like that on the islands. Yeah, they're physically very beautiful. You know, Jersey's a beautiful place. You know, in the in the channel, sitting as we do, we have like a very, very high tidal movement. And on the spring tides, it can be up to like 12 metres, you know, in, in, in excess of 40 feet. And that makes some very, you know, interesting coastal scenes and coastal i mean got some very large beaches where the tide goes out you know for like a couple of miles i've seen pictures yeah. really beautiful yeah and you know we have the, good um, beaches in new jersey too by the way mm -hmm. yeah and on, on the north coast where it's much more cliff like and rocky you have just a very high tidal movement up and down the cliffs which makes it a very fascinating and very interesting area to like swim around and explore on a kayak and that kind of thing so the island's physically very beautiful and most of the people are okay <laughs> but not, mo most but not all so that that's a good yeah. segue into into the next part of the uh of the program which is your introduction so your family has been living in jersey for really since time immemorial sure. uh one imagines right predating the william the conqueror and there was this, this period between is it part of the the duke of normandy's land is it part of uh, of england the king of england when the, that person became the same person, then it became pretty clear who it belonged to. But you, as a, as a pretty young man, got involved in politics. You were elected to represent the people of Jersey when you were in your mid-20s. 
and mm -hmm. you rose through the ranks. You became a senator. You were um, a cabinet minister, and part of your responsibility as cabinet minister was for health and social services. Sure. And under health and social services, what, what in the United States is called CPS, which is Child Protective Services. Yeah. And you started to get complaints. You became aware of bad things that were happening, especially in the orphanages there in Jersey. And when you tried to investigate it and tried to draw attention to it and concluded that, oh my God, things are even more horrible than we could ever have imagined, you were shut down. You tried yeah. to bring it to the attention of the Senate. They basically pulled the plug on you. They didn't want it in the record. And the forces in Jersey who control things there sprung into action to silence you, to cast you as a criminal, to put you in jail on uh, several occasions. And that happened later on in the process. Yeah, yeah. In, initially, it, the, initially <laughs> their opposition was limited to like conspiring, cooking up a plot to have me removed as health and social services minister, you know, which they, they succeeded in doing. Right, which is, um, you know, when you have a, 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 a rampant child abuse problem, the thing to do is to get rid of the person in charge of trying to solve the problem. That, that's, that's smart. A smart play. So th these are not nice people. Is the yeah, point. and 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 generally speaking, actually, not terribly smart people either. <laughs> no, because they can't see. Well, the, you know, mob is like that in general. That mm -hmm. it's all about short term gain and 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 very little long view yeah. for the most part. Which is just you know, give me the money now and that sort of thing. So what you discovered in your your ordeal, I guess, almost in the biblical sense of the word your ordeal through the years of this, because this this happened in 2007 and you're still dealing with the, with the fallout from it, is that you found dark stuff going on in Jersey, not just with the child abuse scandal, but with all the, the apparatus that's there, the elites in Jersey, the people that control the money. You found basically an omerta similar to a mob omerta going on. Sure. From what you gathered, Jersey is basically a, a, a hotspot, a haven for global money laundering. Uh, yeah, I mean, that much was known already. I mean, Jersey's always been a, a tax haven, you know, certainly in, in the modern era. I mean, if you go back in Jersey's history, I'm talking back here at centuries here, Jersey's always been a kind of what we call a crown dependency, which means that whilst technically British, and it's been British since the days of William the Conqueror, because after the, the 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 Norman crown effectively you know moved to England in 1066 right. and took over England, then effectively the Channel Islands became ruled from England, and effectively, uh, when people like King John lost the uh, territories of France, the powers that be on the Channel Islands elected to remain loyal to the English crown because that gave them a lot of privileges and powers. And so the, that's really how the Channel Islands evolved into this peculiar crown dependency status, whereby the British, they didn't actually become part of the United Kingdom when the United Kingdom was actually being put together in terms of the Act of Settlement and the Act of Union. So not many people realise this, but the power structure ultimately on the crown dependencies like Jersey is that of a still that of a pure monarchy. In the United Kingdom, whilst the Queen is consulted and has a certain degree of influence, ultimately, it's what the government ministers say that goes, and the Queen just has to sign it. That power flow is not like that when it comes to the Crown dependencies. The Queen still has ultimate decisive power when it comes to any major 
changes or interventions when it comes to the Crown dependencies. Also, conveniently, she does her private banking through Jersey. Mm. I think the bank's called Coots, I believe. This means that basically the islands are, are self-governing to all intents and purposes, but ultimately the U- UK government and the Crown in particular is responsible for good governance here. And what the people on the Channel Islands have done, Jersey in particular for centuries, is they've made a huge amount of their money out of piracy, privateering. You know, the the monarch would effectively appoint, you know, bosses on Jersey called bailiffs by issuing letters patent, which is a, a strange and archaic kind of monarchical lawmaking. And the Jersey bosses would then hand out in the name of the crown licenses to be privateers, pirates, basically. And they would then happily go off, authorised by the British crown, to raid, pillage the ships of other nations like France and Spain and Portugal. And the Netherlands. Yep, yep. And bring it all back to Jersey, where it would all be divvied up and the crown would get their cut of the action. You know, and that, that's how it worked. You know, so, and, <laughs> and effectively, that, that whole um, constitutional arrangement of licensed piracy is still what Jersey does today. It segued very neatly into the age of modern commerce and certainly up post-World War II banking. And obviously, since the era of electronic communications and electronic banking, Jersey's really come into its own. And so what Jersey does today effectively is still privateering. It's piracy. And it's basically helping the world's elites, uh, mobsters and governments and, and politicians from many countries steal untold trillions of dollars from their people. And, you know, the Jersey pirates who are, you know, the lawyers these days, lawyers and bankers, <laughs> they, they get very, very rich and the crown gets a, gets a cut of the action. So that's essentially what Jersey does to this day. Jersey's always also been a very depoliticized place. I mean, when I first started contesting elections over here, it was often still the case that mo- many of the elections were not even contested. That's one of the reasons why I got I got into politics kind of by accident. You know, we we were concerned about not enough social, you know, um, spending on poorer people. We were concerned about poor environmental standards. And we, we th- thought, like I thought, well, you know, it's all well and good moaning about these things, but if you're not going to get into it and try and fix it, you know, then you can't complain. So I stood for election, not really expecting to get in, but I did. I got elected as a deputy in 1990. That's like a, a small district. And then in three years' time, when that office expired, I got elected as a senator, which was elected by the whole island. Then I was I stayed a senator until I got you know, politically driven, illegally driven out of office in 2010. How how big is the island? About forty five square miles. It's tiny. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've, I've actually got a, a, a t shirt on here. This is a from the ultra Jersey ultra marathon where you run around run around the whole coastline. It's 48, 48 miles distance around the coast. Okay, so it takes <clears> you. That'll take in a, in a car if you're driving fast less than an hour to circumnavigate. Mm-hmm. That. Okay, yeah, it took it took me about eleven hours to run it. Oh, you did! Oh, wow! Yeah, I, I, you know, I. Every time somebody runs a marathon, I point out that the first guy that ran the marathon back in ancient Greece dropped dead when he was when mm-hmm. he was done. You know, and maybe maybe we're not supposed to run. Well, touch wood, it hasn't happened to me yet. <laughs> Let's talk about just for a minute the the, the act. This privateering thing is fascinating, uh, and that was definitely a thing. I mean, one man's mm. pirate is another man's privateer. But sure. the British Empire went around and obviously conquered and pillaged lots of lots of people. But what's sure. what's fascinating to me 
is the British East India Company, which basically ran India as a, mm. a quasi-governmental thing for a hundred years or something like that. And they had the power to, you know, levy taxes, do judgments, go to war, all this stuff in India and yeah. ruled over that place. And it got the resources out of there and then contrived in the middle of the 19th century to have the opium wars with China, where they basically, they wanted the tea from China. Britain didn't have anything that the Chinese wanted. Mm -hmm. So they, the British were like, we'll just get them hooked on opium and then they'll, we'll grow the opium in India and sell it. And that'll be our, our way in. So it was really the first drug war. But when you think about corporations being powerful now and people saying, oh, hmm. corporations are getting too powerful. It's like, I think the British East India Company was, was a little bit more powerful than like Microsoft, I think, you know, I sure. think it, um, that, that whole, um, a, a lot of the British people, including the British elites still have not woken up to the fact that that kind of empire approach is no longer there and that Britain's now just an ordinary weak little country. I mean, a lot of the people that voted for this lunatic idea of Brexit and leaving the European <laughs> Union, they're just, they, they, they've been sold on this notion that Britain can go back to some glorious age of empire. Well, you know, the, the truth about those days, as you've rightly alluded to, is that Britain was able to get so rich and powerful because it was basically thieving the resources yeah. and property from half the planet, you know, in, in a form of like, you know, highly organized piracy. And, you know, no one's going to put up with that anymore. You know, so so all Britain's doing is just making itself poorer and isolated. That that's, you know, what, what's happened. You know, Brexit suits the immediate wealth generation of a handful of the, of the British elites. Um, but it, it's going to be disastrous for, for the great majority of the country. I also have no doubt whatsoever that a lot of Russian money and influence and um, deliberate strategic planning has been used over the years to drive and fuel Brexit and to try and make it happen. And they've succeeded, you know. Since the end of the Second World War, you have what what's called the Pax Americana, which is a period of peace generally in Europe, notwithstanding some flare-ups in the Balkans and stuff in the 90s and this and that. But for the most part, Europe, Western Europe especially, has not been to war for, you know, going on, what, 67 years. Mm -hmm. This is not something that happens. This is a historical anomaly that you yeah. have to go back to the reign of Antonius Pius in the, the first century A.D., to find a similar period in history where, you know, France wasn't fighting Germany, wasn't fighting Spain or something like that. So the fact that we've been able to have peace for this long is so rare, but sure. it's inherently fragile. And yeah. the coming together of the, the finances of all of these countries is what helps maintain the peace. So sure. the adversaries of Western Europe and America, i.e. Russia and whoever else look at this and they say, we want this destroyed because when they're fighting each other, that's our way in. Russia mm -hmm. uh, uh, does this in the United States with active measures. They help drive the wedge issues to, to, to pit people uh, against each other about dumb shit that really doesn't in the grand yeah. scheme, make all that much difference. They did the same thing in, in the UK with Brexit, which is, yeah. I, I think Brexit and Trump are the same op. It's, it's a yeah. different, Different country, same up. It's Russia trying to destabilize 
Western Europe to drive a stake through the heart of NATO and to disrupt this very, very fragile peace that we people our age, we're Gen X people, we have enjoyed for our entire lifetimes and, and take mm -hmm. for granted, you know, that, that Europe isn't going to just descend into this internecine mess, yeah. which it as recently as 1945 was doing. Mm, yeah, and I find um, I find it concerning that younger people in their kind of like um, 20s or whatever uh, take the the, the post-World War II peace, you know, the peace that's existed in Western Europe, very much for granted. They regard it as a state of normality yeah. when it isn't. It's, it's an historic aberration uh, brought about after, you know, a terrible, you know, terrible period of human history. The, the the 20th century's wars were you know, hor horrifying, and you know we in the West made a lot of sacrifices to fight those wars. You know to keep you know respectable, civilized democracy and society going. And the European Union is very much a project that was designed to partly really cement this notion of European unity and to make us all feel you know the same and um, you know all share a common European identity as well as our own national identities. And, you know, in, in the main, it's worked. I mean, there's been the occasional, you know, uh, site of um, separatist parties gaining some ground in some of the states. But I think actually since Brexit and the complete disaster that's obviously being for Britain, the um, any kind of like um, grounds there might have been for people wanting to split up the EU have, be, have been really beaten back now i think you know people uh, appreciate more now just how important and how good the european union is i've no doubt at all that that eventually the the uk will rejoin the european union once we come out of this period of madness and, and the collection of mobsters that are actually ruling us at the moment basically the conservative party which has become you know a, a, as corrupt uh, and as unfit for governance as the gop has in the usa i mean you know we have boris johnson who parties with russian KGB families and you know they've just spent money fitting out the Downing Street communication center paying a Russian company to do it you know I mean this is how fucked up we are we're actually paying the other sides to install their bugging devices you know you know the you first know. clue about Boris Johnson should have been that his name is Boris you mm -hmm. know you don't put a guy named Boris into the yeah no I people on on our side of the pond have spent a lot of time ruminating about how Trump got elected and I this perfect storm of, of stuff, whether it's running against Hillary, who, while she got more votes than anybody had other than, than Obama the first time, was somebody who's very polarizing because the 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 right wing mm. hit machine had spent 30 years uh, yeah. working its 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 dark arts on her. You had yeah, the Comey email. letter, you had the, the, the New York, the bad media press and this and that. That's why Trump got elected. But the Brexit thing never made sense to me. So I want to ask about that because from where I sit, it seems like in Britain, there aren't enough centrists who look at this coldly calculatedly. You either have the, the, the people on the right who are, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the leave faction, and then you have the, the, the people on the far left, the Jeremy Corbyn faction who you know, oh my God, there was one person died in Syria. Let's stop all wars. The government's, you know, that kind of like ideological madness yeah. on both sides. That's what it looks like from my end. So how did Brexit happen? What do you think? Um, Brexit happened because of Britain's corrupt media. 
most of our media and public opinion has been shaped certainly in the World War II years very much by the tabloid press and in the main a hard right-wing tabloid press, papers like The Sun and The Mail and The Mail on Sunday and The Express and, you know, some, you know, more upmarket papers like The Times and The Telegraph, which again are both right-wing. There's only ever been um, The Daily Mirror, which was, um, you know, moderately left-wing, you know, in support of the Labour Party and the more upmarket, you know, centre-left paper is The Guardian. But by far and away, they, they have a very small minority readership. By far and away, the kind of tabloid, right-wing kind of Murdoch-owned press has dominated public discourse in um, Britain in you know, for four decades. And it's much like Fox News has come to do in America. It's actually played a role in really dumbing down the population. Most of the public have got a very unsophisticated take on politics because of the diet of crap they've been fed for like you know four or five decades and so that's that's how people got to be so influenced and again much like blue blue collar people in america voting for trump actually in the main uh, electing trump is actually going to harm their own interests and that that that's what voting for brexit by a lot of working class people especially in the north of england effectively they were cutting their own throats you know right. their, their jobs have been damaged their ability to export products and food and, and fish to europe has been massively damaged factories that they were going to get have built uh, are now not being built and they're being built in europe because you know and a lot of businesses that were successfully running in britain are now shutting up shop in britain and they're moving to france or holland so they can be within the eu and trade frictionlessly without all the bureaucracy that comes with being an external country, having to meet with this, this trading blocks, import restrictions. Again, people were people who were of working class interests and concerns ha had themselves conned. They were conned. And I, I think one of the things we've got to learn as civil society in, in America and in Britain out of all this is how do we elevate the level of public debate how, how do we get people better educated, more sophisticated, more able to understand, you know, all of the, the issues that unite us uh, and the things that make societies gel and work together better and more cooperatively and effectively? Because at the moment, so much politics is, is negative and it's done in bad faith. You see that certainly on the part of the Conservative Party here and on the part of the GOP in America. It's just device of ridiculous stuff that's trivial and not really to do with any kind of policy that actually matters on a practical day-to-day -day level in terms of making the country better and making people's lives better. It's just silly, divisive stuff. But unfortunately, as you know, so many people, that's what they they watch Fox News or whatever, and they, they become brain-rotted by this nonsense. And, you know, it's something we, we have to hope that society can pull itself up out of, you know, this kind of, you know, infantile, you know, divisive. But I mean, I think one of the things I think that's really important about politics and political evolution, I think for some years, given the way that societies around the world have developed in a generally a, you know, a more peaceful way around the world, and there's been a lot of economic growth, I, I think the time has come to park really the old political way of looking at things where it's a left versus right debate you know like bosses versus the workers 
I think the big division and a much more effective way of seeing society these days is to view it as being the rule of law versus the mob. You know, civil society versus corruption. Right. That's, re that's really the political dynamic that, that's going on. And that's what we have to fight. Civil society has to beat the mob interests in politics. All the people who are doing politics in bad faith, doing saying ridiculous things and being obviously corrupt and not doing politics in a serious way that's designed to advance society. People have got to become much more aware of just how corrupt. I mean, everyone thinks politics is corrupt. I, th I think people need to actually start seeing that they've got to put more weight behind and more support behind, you know, the, the side that's on, on the side of the effect of rule of law and civil society, the anti-corruption side. And that, that's true not only of the USA, but it's, it's true here too. I mean, on, you know, just on Jersey, the, the, you know, as I've said before, it was um, in politics, in 20 years in politics here, it was always made as difficult as possible to do the right thing. And to try and get you know positive policies forward and changes in the administration and projects that were good for the community, every conceivable obstacle was put in your way. And if you wanted to just lay around being a lazy bastard and just voting the way you know the bosses ordered you to in the in the legislature, then your life was as easy as pie. Yeah, and that that's just you know, and that's what we've got to change in politics. We've got to make it much harder for people of bad faith and actual crooks to succeed. Prevail is brought to you by Glow Stick Army, the new album from Halo. In the UK, uh, in general, and Jersey in particular, we're getting a glimpse at what life looks like when the bad guys kind of win. Because yeah. now Brexit is there. I mean, it's it. the UK can rejoin, but that is going to take a big process, obviously. Mm -hmm. Here, we managed to escape Trump but the, the uh, and, and, and stay our execution. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the forces of... of evil are still lurking. They're still very powerful. And we don't have that much time before the midterms come. And as you say, where things are stacked against you, here in the United States, the, the way that the systems work, the GOP has inherent advantages because the Senate is so powerful. And the Senate is designed in this archaic way where the fewer than a million people in Wyoming have two senators and sort of 40 million people in California or whatever the sure. numbers are. And it's, 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 it's cuckoo, but that's the way it is. It's very difficult to change these things. We also have our courts being infiltrated by hard right, radical Catholic weirdos, as I, as I wrote about on, on Prevail. But Jersey, to me, 
looks like what happens when the the mafia wins. It is, in a sense, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is that it is a mini oligarchy where you have vast amounts of money come in. And, you know, with all the money sloshing around there, they could probably make it easier for the poorer people on that small island if they wanted to. It wouldn't cost very much. But one of the issues... It, it, it occurs to me with Brexit and the manufacturing jobs and these other industries dying off or moving to, to the continent is that now the financial stuff is that much more important. The, the piracy, yeah. as you say, the, the, the tax havens, the money laundering, the way that money comes in, whether it's from the criminal underworld where the, you know, the Russian mob and other mafias are trying to launder the money, whether it's just super rich people that don't want to pay taxes all sloshing together in this very small place that's a nexus of all this stuff. And what does that look like? And what it looks like is it's just incredibly corrupt. Yeah, Jersey is absolutely um, a, a textbook example of an oligarchy. And it's run by oligarchs intergenerationally. You know, Jersey is an oligarchy without, without question. That's the easiest way to describe it. And when you look at Jersey, it looks from the outside like it's got a, you know, a, a, a functioning polity, a legislature, a judiciary, a prosecution system, a police force. But it, it's all cosmetic. None of it is real in the sense of meeting, say, the objective uh, standards of the European Convention on Human Rights. You know, Jersey's arrangements are nothing like uh, human rights compliant. And they're utterly partisan and biased. I mean, I and many other people have made, you know, cr complaints criminal complaints, formal criminal complaints to the police about various corruptions, not only things like child abuse, but all other corruptions to other very serious crimes and crimes like um, conspiracies to pervert the course of justice. And the, the island's crown officers just tell the police not to investigate, not to take our complaints seriously. So the, the police force on Jersey is basically little more than a, than a, a private enforcement wing for the mob. And Jersey is a and when, when people think of European islands and mafia power, they tend to think of Sicily or maybe Corsica or Malta. Um, the, the, the mafia lineage and power on Jersey is literally at least a millennia old. So it's very old. It could very easily be the oldest kind of mafia structure, mafia power structure in all of the European islands. And it's also the most perfect in that the, the, the Jersey mob have ab obtained that, that dream state that all mafias ultimately aspire to, which is a state of pure invisibility. Right. No, nobody knows that Jersey's got a mafia because they are the prosecution system. They are the police force. They are the courts. They are the legislature. They are the local media. They are all the local law firms. So it just looks normal on the outside once you scrape below that that quaint veneer and actually look at how it's working in reality and what's going on jersey is completely um a, a mob town jersey's a mob town it's completely run by its mobs it's also operates within the legal framework that it's created for itself right so the money comes in but it's a tax haven so in, yeah. Within the island of Jersey, no laws are being broken. It's just fine. Well, that's I, I wouldn't even go. As, I wouldn't even concede that. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the laws in Jersey. I mean, 
are, are absolutely cosmetic. I mean, you know, yeah. just for example, all of the child neglect, child brutality, and uh, child, you know, molestation that was taking place over the decades. Well, all of that was illegal. Yes. You know, clearly there were there were laws, but nobody, you know, took any notice of them. And, you know, it's even worse when it comes to the financial crime laws. I mean, sure, if you spoke to the Jersey government, they'd say, oh, yes, we've got laws that um, make money laundering illegal. Um, we've got all, all crimes anti-money laundering legislation in place, and we cooperate with other jurisdictions when they've got, you know, financial crime that might be linked to activity in Jersey that they want investigated. You know, so Jersey will say all of these things and make all of these claims and proudly brandish its laws saying look look we've got proper legislation but that again most of it's cosmetic but you you will find for a stone fact if the jersey mob don't want to prosecute a particular operation or look too closely uh you know one of the the big powerful entities here then they're not going to yeah. i mean you know appleby appleby's the law firm for example you know of you know paradise papers infamy you know, they're based here and they, they, they're they totally corrupt mob firm. You know, they, they suppressed and oppressed me. And, you know, in an effort to help cover up the child abuse, some of which they were culpable for, because at one point they were representing some of the child abuse victims who they utterly betrayed and didn't get any kind of criminal or civil justice for them. And the conduct of Appleby on Jersey is just it's astonishing. It's just straightforward and just Appleby Global is simply a straightforward transnational mafia syndicate, as frankly are probably most of the big transnational law firms. The, these these basically are the the civilian wings of of the world's transnational mafia syndicates, and those kind of entities find a, a, a natural and accommodating home on places like Jersey. You know, we've even got a branch of Deutsche Bank. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Jen Tao wrote that book, Big Dirty Money, about white collar crime and money laundering and stuff like that and the dangers of it and, and and how it affects societies. And one of the lines in it that really stuck with me is she said that, maybe she was quoting somebody else, it doesn't matter, but the when crime is at a street level, when it's like, you know, teenagers that are trying to do stuff, they get the ideas for their crimes from other more senior street criminals. Mm -hmm. But when it's white collar crimes, the people dreaming up the ideas for the crimes are lawyers that's who comes <laughs> up with the ideas so it's yeah. interesting and, and these law firms because i i have an issue with i know that people everybody needs representation except for you i guess Stuart. right you no, don't, get, you don't get any no Stuart couldn't even find a lawyer in <laughs> in jersey to represent him that's how corrupt this place is i, I, I couldn't find a lawyer to represent me in london Oh my and I could I, I must have tried about twenty law firms over the over the years, and whatever the the, the law the law firm equivalent of of an omerta is, that clearly the word had gone out that I should not be represented, and no law firm would ever entertain representing me. Once they found out that it involved you know addressing you know unambiguous judicial corruption on Jersey, they all just ran a mile. Yeah, no, it's it's but I, I look at these people like Dershowitz, like Alan Dershowitz, for example, who's this criminal defense mm -hmm. attorney of great renown, uh, a deeply character. But I don't understand if you're an attorney, you do have the right as a person with free will to say, I, you know, I don't want to be the lawyer for this Russian mobster. I don't mm -hmm. want to I don't want to defend this horrible 
you know, person. I don't, I don't want that. I might be very good at it, but he's guilty and I don't want him to not go to jail. You know, <laughs> That's where the money have, is. Though. Well, is it though? I mean, if you're, some of these people are, uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it's, uh, <laughs> there, there's the line on the Simpsons where uh, Bart Simpson is accused of murder and Lionel Hutz becomes his attorney. And Lionel Hutz says, I'm Lionel Hutz and I'll be you. I'll be defending you on the charge of murder one. Even if we lose, I'll be famous. And I guess maybe that's what the lawyers want. I don't know. It's it's crazy. It's I I struggle with understanding what exactly they're thinking when they take these clients on, other than just pure greed. I guess that's what it is, right? Or is yeah, it I mean, maybe sometimes people suggest to me that I should retrain, you know, as a as a lawyer. And you know, I think well, at my age, I'm too old to start doing all that now. But um, <laughs> I I couldn't do it. I mean, if you know clients came to me and they were they were actually fucking crooks <laughs> rapists or mobsters or whatever i just say fuck you you're guilty i'm not going to stand up in court and fucking lie about you, you bastard you know i just <laughs> i just couldn't do it you know? yeah no I, I i i couldn't either and and the white collar stuff is even worse in a sense because it's i think people understand viscerally what it means if somebody is murdered or if somebody is raped or if somebody is assaulted or even if somebody goes into somebody's house and steals something important, they get that on a granular level. But money laundering and white collar crime, quote unquote, so-called, is so abstract. It's almost the same thing like when the Russians attacked our election system because it was all done in this sort of virtual way, because mm -hmm. they did it in the way that they did it hacking I think people just can't grasp it if they actually broke into the white house or broke into the dnc and stole the yeah. computers like you know nixon's people <laughs> tried to mm -hmm. whatever people would understand it better i just feel like it's hard for people to wrap their their minds around what exactly is going on so what's your take on that on just on white collar crime and you know why should we care about this stuff i think people should care about it an awful lot more than they do i mean there are huge debates in you know, Britain and America about taxation and how much the government should be spending. And there's all kinds of real focus on this notion of small government and government really shouldn't take taxation or so much taxation off of people. And it seems to me there's a fundamental basis, pre-starting point that's missing completely from that debate. And that is people really don't know, first of all, when they object to taxation, people don't know the true size of the economy and economic activity, because so much of the world's economic activity is washed through, you know, what Oliver Bullough describes as money land, yeah. the world's network of offshore centres and big financial centres like the City of London Corporation. And it's so easy for huge corporations like Apple, for example, who based their entire bank account with Appleby Global on jersey they can avoid millions hundreds of millions of dollars of taxation that by rights they ought to be paying to the u.s government and they can just dodge dodge that and the same applies to most other corporations and even smaller companies and even highly rich individuals so before we can have a, a an accurately informed debate about tax and spend you know and whether there's money available to pay for high quality schooling for all, you know, and college educations for people who want them and universal health care. Um, before people start saying, 
and start objecting to those things and saying, oh, my God, you know, that means the government's going to take more taxes off us and we don't want that, you know, people should have to, you know, pull themselves up or whatever, yeah, no matter how hard, you know, their, their starting circumstances might be. I think before you can get into really criticising the government for wanting to raise taxes, you've got to know, actually, the pool of money that could be there available to be, you know, responsibly and reasonably taxed by the government. So at the moment, I think that whole debate, that debate is missing, just like there are billions and billions and billions of dollars of potential taxable resources that are missing from the debate, they're missing from the, the figures also. And that's largely due to the offshore world. And I think not only for the sake of the, the USA, but I think actually of other countries around the world, especially the developing countries, who've got, you know, some really uh, dubious governments and characters running them. For the peoples of those populations too, I think the whole world of, you know, tax dodging, money laundering, you know, money disguising, you know, d disguised transactions, things of that nature, has got to be much more strongly tackled on an international basis. And, you know, because tax avoidance at that level isn't serving the good of society, frankly. You know, like tax avoidance on that level is only serving the interests, frankly, of some people who are, who are you know, frankly nuts, you know, for, for whom having, you know, a billion dollars just isn't enough. And and mainly in the law, in the main, a lot of mobsters and corrupt governments, yeah, and corrupt establishments around the world. So I think there's got to be, you know, almost like on a kind of UN level, I think there's got to be like a global, you know, real transnational cooperation moving against offshore. The notion of offshore. When people think of places like Jersey as tax evasion jurisdictions, yes, th th that is what they are. But it's more fundamental than that. What Jersey is and places like Jersey are, are fundamentally law evasion jurisdictions. Mm. So any kind of law that applies to the development, the, 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 the use, the transferring of money uh, that, that the people controlling that money would like to be broken, it can be broken, facilitated, it can be broken by using Jersey and places like Jersey. So, I mean, people do all kinds of corrupt deals here, you know, deals that are, you know, that are transnational in nature, but the real core parts of those deals, which are corrupt and obscured, will be done on places like Jersey. So they're out of the purview and out of the ability to be captured by the law enforcement agencies of other major nation states. I mean, when you read um, books like Moneyland or Dark Towers or any number of these other books, um, Nick Shackson's books, you know, treasure treasure islands. Um, you can see that it's actually virtually impossible for even really, really powerful, highly resourced law enforcement agencies like the FBI to really dig into what has gone on in in various you know companies and trust funds and banks and so on when they're based on places like the British Virgin Islands or Jersey, and only very, very occasionally do they succeed. So if you know, um, a really powerful law enforcement agency like that can't really know 99% of what's going on through places like Jersey, then what hope do, do the ordinary taxation authorities of, of ordinary countries have? You know, right. it's just, it's too, the, the whole world of offshore is simply too dark and too impenetrable. And it's like a kind of like a, a quasi 
it's like a parallel universe to the rest of the world and it's you know sucking the blood out of the world's uh, economies and it has to be it has to be reined in somehow yeah. and i'm hoping you know that by, by speaking to you and other other people and I, i'm hoping i can you know contribute to elevating a broad public awareness of the whole notion of of tax evasion and and the kind of things that are facilitated by tax havens like jersey because i think regardless of whether you're a republican not the not the uh, insane part of the republican movement perhaps right. but you know there there is a respectable you know republican if i can use that definition you know and uh, you know ought to be in complete agreement with respectable democrats that taxation laws should apply fairly and properly to everyone and it sh- there shouldn't be dodgers and fake devices and methods by which the very rich and powerful can escape those obligations that everyone else is expected to adhere to you know what i'm not i'm not advocating you know um some massive tax hike what what i'm advocating is that all of the potential ta- for taxation starts getting recognized and that way it can be you know sensible and fair decisions about appropriate levels of taxation can be made i mean at the moment i mean i know this is a source of immense and controversial debate in the usa but you know looking at the usa from other developed successful western countries we just shake our heads in in bewilderment that america has not been capable of putting in place a universal healthcare system yeah free at point of delivery i mean every other developed country pretty much has that and it's just you know and there would be you know anger if we didn't have and uh, yeah, rightly for so some, yeah. for some reason this has been made you know a point of absolute division and contentiousness in america and it's one of those you know maybe if you know the amount of tax evasion that, that's done by american corporations was tackled you could have a universal healthcare system without the taxes on when charges on all the ordinary person having to go up I think that's a good point and that's the that's the piece that people need to really grasp that I think is eluding them these people are stealing from us and they're taking things away from us that should be ours that's money that should be flowing into the system and paying for these things is not yes. and we have a the idea first of all there's a there's a stupid idea an ill-founded idea in this country that government is bad Ronald Reagan said it in his inaugural address something mm-hmm. like government is isn't the answer to the problem government is the problem which is one of the stupidest fucking things yeah. anyone has ever said in the history of time he said it people <laughs> believe this shit government isn't the problem government is us you know we are the government we are the people that are solving the problem so and there is this idea that tax evasion is cool and that getting out of the taxes is kind of a smart thing to do which on a local like very granular level if you're a member of the middle class and you hire an accountant and you figure out some oh i can write this off i can write that's one thing but it's mm-hmm. another thing for vast sums of money coming in to not make it into the ledger as income at all which is what's sure. happening with you know certainly the the organized criminals and the reason that a guy like al capone got busted and the reason that these people need quote unquote legitimate outfits to front them is so that they can say oh no i got this income from this place this place and this place that's what money mm-hmm. laundering is it's about justifying where they got the ill gained wealth from so if we can put the clamps down on that if people can see 
that they're stealing from us. They're stealing mm-hmm. from us because a place like Jersey, because of the tax laws there, because that exists, I don't have health care. Somebody's going to yep. go bankrupt in the United States, not being able to afford medical bills. So some fucking oligarch from Russia cannot pay another billion in tax. It, it, it's all it's all crazy. So yes. I don't want to I don't want to run too long. I want to ask you one more thing before we wind up, because it's been really interesting. And that's the role of the queen. Now, she's been in the mm-hmm. news a little bit more lately, the royal family here, because there was the Meghan Markle interview where racism was alleged or whatever. I didn't mm-hmm. watch it. But the queen clearly knows what's going on in Jersey, right? The queen and her sons, sure. they must know. So yeah. what does that say about her that she lets this continue? I often wonder that. I mean, I, I don't know um, how much personally she directly intervenes in, you know, major, you know, strategic decisions that affect the crown dependencies. I imagine she probably does. Whether she does so um, knowing that what's going on here is wrong and corrupt and dangerous for most of her subjects here, because we're run essentially by a, a, you know, a crown empowered mafia, whether she actually knows that and understands that, I couldn't say. Certainly, I, 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 can, I can say for a fact, because I've seen correspondence, not, not by me, but by um, a, a Jersey lawyer, in fact, with Buckingham Palace, to, and that was answered by her then personal assistant, personal advisor. And it's absolutely clear that the people like this advisor and the professionals that surround her are not giving her good advice. And that, that's probably been the case for decades. And so... I think the, the, the monarchy is, is very vulnerable at the moment. I mean, the monarchy has been vulnerable, you know, to being, it's still got too much political influence and in all kinds of ways, too much political power through the Privy Council and things of that nature. Was Britain not having a written constitution? You know, the monarchy still plays a very actually, you know, important and not insignificant role in power behind the scenes. You know, people imagine the monarchy as being this absolutely politically neutral kind of quaint tourist attraction. Actually, it's it's not quite like that behind the scenes. And the monarch and the heir to the throne have both got significant personal powers when it comes to legislation. They can ask for um, legislation to be, or can in fact refuse to sign, the monarch can refuse to sign certain legislation if that legislation is deemed to impact on the monarch's personal interests. And, you know, that could be one of the reasons why proper steps aren't taken ever to clean up the activity on Jersey. The monarchies become, I think, very, very contaminated through places like Jersey with, you know, money laundering, basically, and all kinds of illegal arms trading, arms dealing that's been done through through Jersey, often involving British interests. And I think I blame actually Britain's security services for this. I mean, I think decades ago, really, that the monarchy should have been taken to one side, you know, by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and said, look, the British monarchy in its current state is too involved in politics, has too many commercial interests, uh, isn't under enough proper political constraint, you know, for an unelected head of state. You know, you, you are basically part of the British government effectively and the, the monarchy should have been like basically put into a box it should have been reduced its powers and influence should have been reduced and any risks to contamination such as associations with dodgy money tax evasions 
the risks, you know, that were always going to be there, obviously, of the entrapment of people like, you know, the imbecile Prince Andrew, things of this nature. You know, um, the, the monarchy has been left exposed and, and put in a place of danger over these decades by the failures of the British state at the highest level to foresee these risks and these dangers. All kinds of harm, consequently, has been done to the monarchy. You know, and I think that's one of the things that has to change. I don't see Britain adopting a, a Republican view anytime soon. But I, I, do, I honestly do think the the monarchy needs to be made much more into the benign museum piece that people imagine it to be, as opposed to this really powerful kind of parallel empire that runs in parallel to the actual elected government of the United Kingdom. And strangely enough, that means going back to Magna Carta and, you know, basically, you know, taking the scissors to it. Because at the moment, the, the, you know, people, you know, Magna Carta was taught a lot in, in American schools because it's the first document that ever put in, put in writing and made it official that pure tyranny couldn't be, wasn't, wasn't legitimate. And, um, you know, famously included habeas corpus so no one could be imprisoned unless on a proper and lawful basis. But, I mean, as historically important as Magna Carta was, that was only a deal between the monarch and the rich and powerful barons and elites of the day. The peasants, the vast majority of ordinary people, got fuck all out of Magna Carta. <laughs> and, you know, so really we've got to move on. And embodied in Magna Carta, of course, are the huge powers and privileges of the City of London, corporation which is a state within a state in britain you know it has its own elections has its own laws its own police force and that's where all the banksters and the big law firms and frankly the real mafia syndicates that control places like jersey that's where they're based so i think that whole the whole notion of the powers of the city of london corporation and the the links that the city of london corporation has with the monarchy have got to start being constitutionally addressed to make the monarchy much more politically neutral so that a lot of the financial crime facilitated by the city of london around the world can actually be effectively tackled and of course you know as, as far as the personal travails of people like prince andrew you know if he's committed offenses or it appears that he's committed offenses and he, he should be extradited and be questioned and prosecuted well but clearly that that is what should happen now, yes. whether the, the monarchy and the British state would ever agree to that, of course, is another, another, another question entirely. But I think just generally, you can see that the monarchy, as it's currently allowed to be, and its current structures, is, is increasingly problematic. You know, not not just for Britain and for the monarchy itself, but the the, the kind of activities that are undertaken under the kind of skirts of the monarchy so to speak by the by the british elites it, it's very problematic for britain and the world and i think britain's got to start having a constitutional heartfelt think about that but again most people are not aware that these problems exist at yeah. the moment so much like the whole notion of global you know dark money you know mob money you know russian mobsters and you know money from the middle east and tax evasion all this kind of stuff People have got to start becoming a lot more aware of these big, big picture issues than actually a lot of the smaller 
issues that we argue about and, and that are used to divide us as a society would start assuming actually the much smaller significance and less significance that they deserve and you know some, tackling some of the world's big problems and you know and society's bigger problems like providing good health care would become a lot easier to focus on i think that would be that would be nice um i forgot to mention before about deutsche bank they I think in the last 10 years, something like that, they've paid $11 billion in fines. And if they're mm -hmm. willing to do that year after year after year, the amount of money that they're making must be just yeah. un unimaginably vast. And it's funny you bring up the Magna Carta as the cause of, of problems in Britain. I was reading the Jill Lepore book, These Truths, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm a third of the way through it. It's fascinating about the, basically, how the constitution sort of came to be and all this kind of stuff. It's a history of the United States looked at from that standpoint. And I think whoever, I forget whoever started citing it here, nobody had heard of this document. You know, it was like, so they found it, dusted it off. We're like, Hey, look, let's use this. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that, that King John produced the Magna Carta and also produced the law that made Jersey sort of the, the established the precedent to make Jersey what it is in terms of mm -hmm. the rest of the United Kingdom. Yeah, um, Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man. So, thank you so much for coming. This was a fascinating conversation, Stuart Sivray. What is your Twitter handle? Um, at Stuart Sivray. Okay, so it's S Y V R E T, right? I always, yeah. I always want to put another R in there yeah. or something. I, I'm always spelling it wrong. Yeah, S Y V R E T. Okay, please follow just him just on we, Twitter. Before we sign off, let me oh. tell, tell you a, little, a funny story about one of the. I mean, I've, I've become Jersey's first political prisoner since the Nazis got thrown out, which is strange because you know my um, you know my, my grandmother and 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 her children were, were deported to a Nazi internment camp, you know Biberak, where she gave birth to my mother. They 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 survived, you know they they got liberated by American troops. You know I'm very happy to say thank you to America for that. You know, and, and um, you know, but it's very strange that, you know, having had that kind of family experience, then these years later, I end up becoming, getting politically imprisoned three times for telling the truth and trying to protect vulnerable children. And, but I, I was repeatedly, you know, like jailed by the Jersey's corrupt, politicized court by directly conflicted judges you know, themselves, you know, cho chosen by co co conflicted people with a direct interest in the controversy. And, and that's simply unlawful because, you know, a court has to be completely impartial. Yeah, you know, there's nothing complex about that. You know, not, right. not only must justice be done, it must be seen to be done. So any court where the judge is directly conflicted and has got a direct interest in, you know, the case and the outcome of it, well, that isn't a lawful court. So on one of the occasions, I think it was the second time, or was it the third time I was I was imprisoned? I tried to make a habeas corpus application, <laughs> and they they wouldn't let me make a habeas corpus application. They just wouldn't let me even make the application. You know, to, to be so that's how much use even habeas corpus out of Magna Carta was. <laughs> you know, in Jersey, you know, you can't even um you don't even have the right to appeal a basic appeal against an unlawful deprivation of your freedom. I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but I have to salute you, Stuart, for fighting the good fight and not giving up and not being driven out of your home and trying your best to speak the truth to power. And Lord knows there's a lot of power where you are. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, here here in in the United States, in New Jersey, we we think of the Jersey Mafia and we think of the Sopranos and we think of the mm-hmm. people that ran Atlantic City and stuff like that. But as it turns out, the old Jersey Mafia, much, much more powerful and nefarious. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so in all seriousness, the, the, the reason, you know, New Jersey has that kind of reputation and that culture, it, it's no accident because the people that, you know, founded and ran and developed New Jersey in the early days were the Jersey pirates, the, the Jersey mobsters. <laughs> you know, so it's it's no accident that that culture has particularly taken root and, and flourished there. You know, if, if Tony Soprano came on holiday to Jersey, he'd be he would have been just fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would have enjoyed it. No, it's a beautiful island. I've seen the pictures. So, Stuart Savray, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been well, a pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail. <laughs>